Hello, I'm Martin Gill, and this is the CX Cast. Welcome back to the CX Cast. I am here on my own flying solo. Angelina isn't with us today. But I am joined by two of my colleagues. First off, Olivia Burdark, Research Director based out of the UK. Hello, Olivia. Hi, Martin. And second, David Hoffman, based out of New York, also a Research Director with Forrester. So welcome, David. Thank you, Martin. Nice to be here. So the reason I've got these two characters on is because, as you might know already, every year Forrester looks at predictions. We, we look at what's happened in the last year. We look at the data we have, the trending, what we're hearing from clients, what we're hearing from you guys out there. And we try to predict what we think is going to happen next year. And Olivia and David are here to talk to us about our financial services predictions because they both cover banking, financial services, insurance, wealth management, all those kind of topics. So where I want to start, we're going to dig into some of the predictions, but what I want to start with is just some kind of broad industry context, because obviously there's a lot going on in the banking world. There's crazy interest rates, there's possible financial crises all over the world. So uh, Olivia, can you just start with like level set what's going on in the world of banking? Mm -hmm. So obviously we didn't start the year very well uh, with three bank failures in the US and uh, really sort of last minute rescue of uh, Credit Suisse or rescue, call it rescue, obviously acquisition by UBS. So that really set the stage for a very uncertain environment. But ironically, the profit margins of banks don't look bad because of high interest rates. So we've got very healthy net interest margins that are making banking fairly profitable. The capital markets are are looking pretty okay as well. Insurance, a bit of a mixed bag, because of course, it very much depends on weather, given climate change, whether conditions are deteriorating and therefore claims are increasing. But all in all, you know, given the comparison to the last previous years, it's it's not a bad time because profits are not squeezed as of this point. So that means there's room for banks to invest in building better customer experiences, helping their customers, that kind of thing. That's right, because I mean, historically, uh, banks were very much about you know cost reduction, efficiencies. Right. Many suffer from legacy systems, high operating costs, and really a lot that we were hearing from financial services clients was cost savings. But now that they have these fairly healthy profit margins, they can indeed focus a little bit more on CX, customer retention. And as you'll see from some of our predictions, it's the right thing to do because good conditions, economic conditions empower incumbents, but they also give a bit of ammunition to some of the challengers that can come back and also try to tempt customers with better rates. The only thing I'd add to that, Martin, is the fact that banks by definition or bankers by definition are generally cautious, right? And so one of the cautious tones we hear about is the fact that credit hasn't really materialized or bad credit hasn't really materialized in the current environment. In fact, quite the opposite has happened. We've seen robust job growth. We've seen decent economic growth, despite the fact that rates are higher. Bankers are looking at various areas of the market and saying, should we be reserving more? Should we be reserving more for consumer credit? Should we be reserving more for real estate credit? These types of things. But so far, it hasn't really shown up in a way that's going to impact their level of investment and their enthusiasm around trying to build better CX. So with that as context, given that this is the CX cast, we're going to focus on more of the, the customer experience, relevant predictions, the consumer side things, and we'll start with the customers themselves. We're saying that there's going to be a shift in deposits, a change in the nature of customers' primary banks, aren't we? 
That's right. So I kind of hinted at this, that this economic environment uh, benefits everyone, not just incumbents, but also some of the challengers. Because when you have really low interest rates, it's very difficult to tempt customers and be able to tempt them with high interest rates on savings. But this is what's happening. So incumbents globally are not really passing on higher interest rates on savings. They are increasing interest rates on loans, but not so much on on savings. And this is already creating a bit of a reaction. So in the UK, where I'm based, the regulator, the FCA, has set out an action plan on cash savings to ensure that banks treat customers fairly and pass on some of those uh, benefits from higher interest rates. But the reality is that many banks globally are not doing so and just you know, pocketing this difference. And what we're saying is that this will actually prompt customers to vote with their feet. About 30% will shift deposits away from their primary bank because they are, at the time of high inflation, really looking for accounts that will pay them higher interest rates than what incumbents currently offer. So this is going to empower challengers, uh, fintechs, but also some of the bigger players like Apple. Apple Card already offers a high yield savings account that has attracted more than $10 billion in deposits since launching just in April. So, So this is definitely going to sway customers to come to some of those challengers. So is that is that just a money, a pure kind of interest rate based decision? Because I think you talk about the UK market. One of the things we see from our CX index in the UK market in particular is massive differentiation between mm. the, the challenges and the digital banks and the incumbent banks. So is, is there an experiential part of what's luring customers away? So it's a good question, Martin, because you're absolutely right that in our CX index research, we see that prices and fees, it's one of the driver categories that we analyze uh, when we're looking at customer experience. These drivers associated with prices and fees typically don't have all that much influence on CX quality and also customer loyalty in the sense that particularly in in areas like current accounts or checking accounts in, in the US, customers rarely switch. You know, they stay with the same provider for, for decades sometimes. Right. The first account that they've opened with, we often hear that they open an account with a bank that their parents banked with and so on. But it's a little bit different when it comes to things like savings because customer loyalty, as you know, is not just about retention. It's also about enrichment. And a lot of customers, when they are intending to open a new account, let's say a savings account, that's where they really do shop around. They shop around for um, information on prices, rates, and so on. So when they're in the market for a new product, like a savings product, that's where they will look at interest rates and choose partly on that basis. That said, as you mentioned, the initial attraction might be interest rates. But what historically has proven difficult is to keep those customers who really just do shop around. But what we're saying is also that challengers do offer often better experiences. So they might attract those customers with initial sort of higher rate, but they will keep them based on the quality of the customer experience they offer because they do offer better quality customer experiences. So yes, the initial maybe trigger will be those those higher rates. But once banks, incumbents lose those customers, it will be more difficult to win them back because that's where customers experience that actually it's possible to have a fantastic banking experience with some of these challengers. So we're not saying we're just going to end up at a price war. The actual experience you deliver is still going to be critical to retention. That's right. Yeah, the way I would sum that up is people shop on price, but they stay on experience. They stay on service. And then our second prediction starts to talk about like niche journeys and differentiation, doesn't it? And I think that's where a lot of the 
digital banks and the challenges do go very niche in terms of the market they go after. So what, what are we saying is happening in this kind of space? So what we've seen over the years is that, you know, a lot of fintechs have built a lot of their services and their value propositions around these kinds of niche audiences. And they can be various different groups of people that they're trying to identify as targets. Right. And, you know, some of them will stay, some of them will collapse. As we know, the fintech market can be quite volatile. But in our view, what's going to happen is the traditional finance companies, the, the banks and, and other finance companies that we've dealt with for decades are going to focus on some of these underserved audiences. They're going to build more inclusive products and services for people with really specific needs. So in some cases, that might be somebody with a physical or a cognitive disability, somebody who might have a specific need that goes unmatched by typical journeys that banks really have been designed around for years to be just a generic service product. And as we was seen in our research is that banks really struggle to create a personal experience with their, with their customers, to personalize things, particularly to personalize things when it comes to technology. Our research also shows that consumers look at banks as being very much the same. They don't see a lot of differentiation among them, and yet they really do crave those kinds of specific services and products that are designed around them individually. It's our view that in the coming year, more and more traditional finance companies and some of the fintechs are going to design products and services that really help people with the specific journeys that they're looking for. It could be anything from, as I said, you know, some sort of disability to some sort of family event, how you deal with divorce, how you deal with death, all of these kinds of things that customers are looking for specific personalized approaches that their banks currently do not offer them. And listeners who are interested, if you go back to the Episode 309, we talk about the state of digital accessibility, designing for accessibility, that kind of thing. So there's more content there if you want to learn more about that. So our next prediction starts to talk about open banking, which is maybe about choice, it's maybe about customers' data, it's maybe about democratizing access to things, but it's also there's a strong value component to this, isn't there? And we talk about value for customer. Maxi was on here talking about value for customer and the different dimensions of it. Open banking's happened, happening in the UK. It's coming to the US. Maybe where, where are we at in terms of what we're saying is going to happen there? So I'll, I'll perhaps start with what we've seen in other geographies, right? Obviously, Europe is a bit ahead, uh, quite a bit ahead of the US in terms of the regulatory aspect. And the US is catching up now with uh, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's proposed rule on personal financial data rights. So this has historically had a bit of um, resistance uh, in the US. And we saw the same situation in Europe where banks very much worry. You know, they worry that this is a threat and that if they give competitors or challengers, fintechs access to customer data, that those customers will, will go away. Of course, you know, it's easy to to think about this as a just kind of like a competitive tug of war, but it's really about empowering customers with access to their data and leveraging that data to build new personalized services for those customers. Because if you think about it, you know, everybody focuses on things like account aggregation, being able to see all your accounts from a variety of providers in a single place. But actually, the U.S. has had account aggregation for a while delivered by a number of fintechs, and it hasn't really created a lot more kind of uh, issues around retention or something like that, because there hasn't been all that much value created for customers. Just seeing your accounts in one place is not that valuable. So this is about creating a level playing field, about really enabling data sharing securely with a set of standards so that firms, both incumbents and and, and challengers, can actually build new types of services on top of that data to create that value for customers. 
which at the moment I think is uh, pretty much lacking. Yeah, I would agree. In fact, I would go one step further and say that indeed, where we are in terms of the U.S., the experience has become quite clunky in many respects because there is no sharing and, and a lot of financial institutions take the approach of my way or the highway and the customer ultimately suffers because of that. Even the account aggregation that Olivia describes is not there because people aren't on shared platforms or shared technologies. And until we get a common standard or a common set of rules around this, that next step that Olivia is describing of being able to offer not just a view, but a comprehensive view planning and other kinds of tools that customers can use to improve their financial situation are just not going to happen. So this, this potentially gives CX pros either a huge opportunity or a complete nightmare as <laughs> they begin to have to design much more open experiences. They can't really measure the impact of the experiences. Their customers are getting services from brands all over the place. Like how do you, how do we approach this from either a design or a measurement perspective in terms of mapping journeys, understanding journey success, and just working out what we're trying to deliver for customers? So I think it's a massive opportunity because it allows you to really think about it from the perspective of customers, right? How can you use data from other banks, from other financial services firms about your customers to build solutions for those customers? You know, what problems are you trying to solve? What can you what can you create, particularly in areas like financial well-being? You know, we're living through a high inflation cost of living crisis. So helping customers manage their money, and this is something that we've written a lot about, is really paramount. And at the same time, we haven't really created all that great solutions in that space. Because as I mentioned, just seeing all your accounts on a single page doesn't really tell you anything about, okay, how should I optimize my debt? You know, which debt should I be paying off first? Uh, how should I be thinking about my savings buffer? Where should I put those savings? And so on. So for me, it's a huge opportunity if you really just focus on, okay, what value are customers looking for and could get as a result of these great, better ways of accessing their data? It also starts with the premise that the customer is going to go where they want to go anyway, right? And so it also obviates necessity for one financial institution to do what they've tried to do over decades, which is to build this sort of financial supermarket, right, where technology can actually step in and say, well, I can't provide you with that particular product, but I can include it in what you are doing financially and what I'm trying to do for you financially as part of an overall plan. And by doing that, you don't need to create the infrastructures you would normally or typically have to have to bring that product in-house, to create that product in-house. You can rather have someone else do it for you and still provide a, an effective service to your client and improve their experience overall. So this takes us to a world where it's no longer one customer, one bank, kind of a linear relationship. It's a world where we have much more open, embedded, like permeable products, customers moving around the place. That can, as you say, there's a huge opportunity, but also could be quite a challenge for mm -hmm. some banks. So what are we seeing there in terms of like distribution channels and go-to-market strategies? So embedded finance, uh, where you kind of embed your products and services into third-party experiences, has been hot for, for a while, right? People get right. really excited about embedding their loan and maybe a, a car marketplace or embedding insurance into a vehicle purchase or, or a mortgage where you, you know, maybe add a, a life insurance or some kind of payment protection uh, product. But one of our predictions for insurance specifically is we think that half of those kind of embedded distributors will struggle to convert consumer interest to sales. Actual consumer interest is, is quite high. 
we see that, for instance, in the US, about 41% of online adults would consider an embedded auto insurance product and similar sort of 38% in, in France. But the reality is that there are a lot of questions that customers have, which really verge on how well you manage your customer experience ecosystem, because some customers prefer to keep all their products with a single provider, or they don't have trust in both the actual sort of brand that is distributing this, and particularly what will happen when they need customer service. So they're asking questions about, okay, in this kind of setup, who who do I turn to? So if you want to make this a success, you have to recognize all these worries and be pretty good at customer experience ecosystem management so that your customers also have the confidence that if something is, is wrong, they will get the right level of help and you won't be like passed between these you know, distributor, manufacturer of the product and so on. I think the the shared CX challenge is one we see in a number of markets and particularly insurance, financial services, where as, as the seller or the producer of the product, should I say, like the financial services factory, if you're selling through a distribution channel, you don't necessarily own the customer, you can't necessarily control the customer experience. And this, this challenge of what role should the CX teams in these production companies, for want of a better word, play versus the CX teams in the companies that are actually managing the customer, selling, doing the service? Do you see, like, how does that tension play out? What role does the, the producer need to play? Hmm. So I think it's about how you manage not only like a B2C journey, but also a B2B2C journey, right? So you, you're designing for you know, digital portals for your distributors and thinking very carefully about co-branding and how you share customer data, because some of these situations are complex. You know, you're underwriting, so you need access to customer data, but you're not distributing. So it's also about how you give customers confidence that their data privacy is, is respected. So I think as a manufacturer of these products, you want to be careful about the types of partners you choose, who share your values, who you're really confident will also manage customer data securely. You want to have toolkits for your sort of embedded sellers on how to manage key issues. You want to maybe support them with some sort of past experiences you've had. So there's a lot I think you can do by mapping both of these journeys, the B2B2C and the B2C element of this, to anticipate issues and basically find solutions before problems arise. So our final prediction talks about investments. Now, we've talked a lot about banking, open banking, a bit about insurance. We haven't really covered investments yet. So what do we see from a CX point of view, from maybe a mobile point of view, is going on in that world? Well, Martin, this is really what I would refer to as a really mundane prediction, but <laughs> mundane doesn't mean it's not important. Uh, so, yep. well, first of all, we've been researching mobile banking apps for years. And last year was the first year where we actually looked at mobile investing apps and looked at their capabilities, their functionality, even their user experience. And what we found is there's this complete lack of capability or functionality to allow investors while using the mobile app to buy fixed income securities. And we think that's a reflection of the interest rate environment over the last 30 years. Rates have been coming down for 30 years, and there hasn't been a whole lot of enthusiasm around owning fixed income instruments. The financial institutions have really leaned into the equity side of the business in a meaningful way. Well, now that rates have become much more attractive and people want to be able to access those investments wherever they are, we believe that multiple U.S. investment firms and, and other firms will have to create the capability on their investing app for people to not only buy these securities, but to screen them just as they have on their desktop apps. 
And so it's really disappointing when we look at the statistics that only 25% or a quarter of the people were able actually to find a bond with a certain yield on their app. Whereas if you go onto any mobile investing app uh, and look for a stock, it is relatively easy and carefree to do. And so we think it's an imperative for firms to look at this to improve the experience that their customers are having when they, you know, sign on and want to do something. If they can't do it, it's a very disappointing experience. And if they have to go to a different device, not their preferred channel, then they're going to be ultimately uh, disappointed by that. So if you look across all of the predictions, you're painting a picture of a world that's not becoming simpler, arguably becoming more complicated. Customers are becoming more volatile. Distribution networks becoming more complicated. Customers can easily move around. So loyalty becomes harder to manage. I mean, is that, is that a fair reflection of where the predictions are going? Oh, definitely. As we kind of described the flight of deposits towards challengers, the regulators aligning globally on open banking in order to empower customers and promote competition and I think innovation as well. We talked about the embedded finance and, and how it's difficult to manage some of those experiences. So all of this, as you said, kind of points to a world where you really have to think very carefully about the value that your customers are getting from you, your own positioning, and not just count on basically customer inertia that they won't leave you because that's what a lot of financial services customers do. They just kind of stay with the providers because the world is certainly getting more competitive and more open and more driven by emerging competition. I would agree. And I also point out that, you know, for decades, financial institutions have been built around products and not around customers. And there's a real need for them to start taking a much more holistic view. And this is brought out by, you know, advances in open banking and other areas that they really do have to take a holistic view of their customers. They can't think of them as a depositor. They can't think of them as a borrower. They can't think of them as a property and casualty insurance customer. They have to think of them holistically and their entire financial life or they'll get left behind. So that's a, a nice place to finish things as a CX pro in this kind of environment. Focus on customer value, focus on the core of what you can deliver in terms of mapping out journeys, measuring customer success, and driving loyalty. Hopefully you can thrive in this complicated world. So thank you, Olivia. Thank you, David, for your time talking about the broad world of banking. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much. And thank you to producers Ellie and Julia, without whom none of this would happen. If you want to get in touch, email us at cxcast at forrester.com. And as always, you can find us at forrester.com or on your favorite podcast platform. So don't forget to like, subscribe, and tune in next time for more CX Insights.